0: Welcome to Rants and Reason. I am Chuck. I am Karen. I used to be a Democrat.
1: I used to be a Republican. I'm still a liberal. I'm still a conservative. And as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies. We are friends.
0: We are friends. How's your week been, Karen?
1: It's been good. Just trying to catch up with all the podcasts that we need to do. We haven't been getting content out regularly, and I'm trying to make up for that.
0: Um, During the last couple of long episodes, we have been going over the two key concepts in the term religious freedom, the Establishment Clause and the Exercise Clause. Now, it's been a while, so hopefully you remember those. And if you don't, go back and listen to them again. Right. Today, we are going to apply what we learned in figuring out the reasoning behind the decision of the Hobby Lobby case, which seems to be the basis of all religious freedom law discussions today.
1: Here are the basic facts in the Hobby Lobby case. There's the Green family who owns and operates Hobby Lobby stores, Inc., which is, as everyone knows, a national arts and crafts chain with over 500 stores and over 13,000 employees. It just occurred to me we have listeners in other countries that might not know what Hobby Lobby is. So I guess everyone does not know, but it is a arts and crafts store. That also sells like decor, things like that. Anyway, the Green family organized the business around their interpretation of Christian principles of, the, of faith and explicitly expressed the desire to run the company according to their interpretation of biblical precepts. And one of those is the belief that the youth, uh, use of birth control methods that terminate the life sparked by a fertilized egg is immoral. The Greens object to facilitating coverage of four types of contraceptives. They covered 16 other types, but these were the four that they had an issue with. These included two types of intrauterine devices, IUDs, Plan B, and Ella. Their objection was based on a religious belief that human life begins at the moment of conception. So... Methods that interrupted with that process were ones that they didn't want to cover. Under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the ACA, also known as Obamacare, employment-based group health care plans must provide Certain types of preventative care, such as FDA approved contraceptive methods. While there are exemptions available for religious employers and nonprofit religious institutions, there were no exemptions available for for profit institutions such as Hobby Lobby.
0: So on September 12, 2012, the Greens, as representatives of Hobby Lobby Stores Inc., sued Kathleen Sebelius the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, and challenged the contraception requirement. The plaintiff's argument claimed the requirement that employment-based health care plans cover certain forms of contraception violated the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, RFRA.
1: Right. They sought a preliminary injunction to prevent the enforcement of tax penalties, which the district court denied, and then a two-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit affirmed. The Supreme Court also denied relief, and the plaintiffs filed for a hearing of the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals reversed and then held that the corporations were persons for the purposes of RIFRA and in. doing so had protected rights under the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. Okay, so Chuck, how did the court come to the conclusion that Hobby Lobby as a corporation should be viewed as a person?
0: Well, I think first, they clearly stopped at a bar (laughs) and knocked back a bunch of tequila and went back and talked about it.
1: Well, we have slightly different opinions on this, but...
0: Well, the majority pointed to the Dictionary Act. This is very important, and it's, it's kind of obscure. The act, it was established in 1871, instructs the court to apply to all federal statutes definitions of certain common words, including person, and to use basic rules of grammatical construction, such as the rule that plural words include the singular, unless context indicates otherwise. The act's legislative history suggests that its purpose was to avoid prolixity and tautology, which basically means being wordy, long-winded, and confusing, much like my (laughs) co-host.
1: That's a pot (laughs) calling the kettle, man. Okay.
0: Well, Hmm. in line with general trends in statutory interpretation... The courts have applied the act inconsistently for the past century. The court's characterizations of the Dictionary Act have ranged from a tool of last resort to a presumptive guide. Now, the Dictionary Act states that the words person and whoever include corporations, companies, associations, firms, partnerships, societies, joint stock companies, Dogs, (laughs) Dogs cats, <laughs> and individuals, clowns, just about everything no. <laughs> under the sun. Yeah.
1: Well, RIFRA does not contain an intrastate definition of person that would override the Dictionary Act, and that's actually a problem because then the court has to look to the Dictionary Act to to fill the gap. Of course, the Dictionary Act isn't the only tool that the courts can or even should use to interpret ambiguous text. Other options which have been deployed considering the implications of RIFRA for the ACA contraception mandate include RIFRA's legislative history and case law concerning religious exemptions under the Free Exercise Clause. One important thing to note in the Hobby Lobby case in particular is that the company is run by a trust. Whether a trust is a legal person within the meaning of the Dictionary Act is not at all clear. All we know is according to the Act, trusts are not among the enumerated entities that count as persons. Everything else under the sun was, but not a trust.
0: But not a trust, that's right.
1: So, if they are not defined as persons under the Dictionary Act, then what are they? If they are the appropriate humans to consider whether their religious exercise has been compromised under RIFRA, then that would mean that there are a lot more people to consider the sincerely held beliefs of, not just the owners. All the shareholders would have to count as well. In other words, because Hobby Lobby is operated as a corporate trust, the majority of that trust would have to, they would really need to be named in the suit along with the owners so in its decision the high court agreed with Hobby Lobby ruling that closely held and they that's its own entity within a corporation a closely held corporation is different closely held corporations should be a, accorded religious liberty rights and are covered by RIFRA. once it was determined that they were RIFRA eligible these were the issues at hand. So this is all of really the, the sketchy part was whether or not it qualified for RIFRA, And once it met that qualifications, according to the court, these were really the questions the court had to answer right here. Does the mandate of providing access to the four contraception methods specified substantially burden the exercise of religion? Is the mandate in furtherance of a compelling government interest? Is the mandate the least restrictive means of furthering the government interest?
0: Well, here's how they decided, Karen. All right. After Justice Samuel Alito woke up from his bender, he realized (laughs) he read his 5-4 majority decision. And the key points in this majority decision were, you can tell that I don't really agree with this decision, and neither did four other Supreme Court justices. Well,
1: you kind of did.
0: I kind of did, yes. But according to the Dictionary Act, these are the key points. According to the Dictionary Act, the closely held corporation was entitled personhood.
1: That's really your sticking point right there, right?
0: No, not really. Uh, because of that personhood, Ripper <laughs> did apply. Riffer is my sticking point through everything. Right, yeah. Uh, the contraception mandate forced corporations with religiously held beliefs to fund what they consider abortion, which went against their stated religious principles or faced significant fines. In the case of Hobby Lobby, it was between $1.3 and $1.5 million a day.
1: A day, Right.
0: Now, clearly, those fines created a substantial burden that is not the least restrictive method of satisfying the government's interest. In fact, a less restrictive method exists in the form of the Department of Health and Human Services exemption for nonprofit religious organizations, which the court held can and should be applied to for-profit corporations such as Hobby Lobby. Now, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote that the government had not met its burden to show that there was a meaningful difference between nonprofit religious institutions and for-profit religious corporations under RIFRA,
1: Which is actually a really interesting argument because the nonprofit exemptions, I mean, the only difference is the, the corporation aspect of it. So... um. I really didn't delve deeply into his decision, and I probably should read it because I bet it is. It, that, that's an interesting point to make. So the rulings did have some very specific limitations. While the court handed advocates for religious accommodation a major victory, it also took pains to draw the, some lines and boundaries around that decision. First, the majority limited the ruling to closely held companies in which a small group of individuals not only own the entity, but are deeply involved in its governance and operation. The justices specifically stated that the decision does not apply to publicly held corporations. Second, the majority made it clear that this ruling does not give employers license to discriminate against racial and other minority groups in employment or in the provision of goods and services. And it's this particular part that has actually limited how many cases have followed Hobby Lobby, that there really haven't been as many as were projected. And I think that has a lot to do with it is the very well-defined boundaries
0: Right. Now, the Hobby Lobby decision, it really doesn't represent a radical change in religious liberty law, even as it applies to for-profit business. The fact that the ruling is limited to closely held companies and that the majority specifically warns against the future use of religious liberty claims by businesses to justify discrimination means that the decision could have a very limited impact in future cases involving businesses and questions of religious rights. At the same time, it's unclear how this could influence a series of other cases involving religious exemptions. However, from a report from 2016 showed in the two years after Hobby Lobby, only 52 similar cases showed up in state courts.
1: Right, which is actually very small in comparison to what the fear was. So a recent survey taken by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that a slim majority of Americans, about 55%, believed that for-profit businesses should provide free contraception to their employees, even if doing so violates the personal religious beliefs of a company's owners. While many on the left are strongly opposed to the decision, it's important to understand that it was actually decided based on precedent that they would they were very sympathetic to. I mean, that's the whole concept behind RIFRA. Uh, we talked a lot about that in the exercise clause. RIFRA came about because a lot of um, liberal groups disagreed with the court's decision in Employment versus Smith. And um, both parties decided to be very reactive in legislation, and now we have RIFRA. So, one thing to note. Where it talks about the 55 percent of Americans think that companies should provide free contraception, the, the really a big linchpin of this whole case is that Hobby Lobby did supply contraception, 16 different kinds. It was only four kinds that they were opposed to. They were opposed to 16. Of, I mean, they were fine with 16 other kinds of birth control. So it wasn't that Hobby Lobby was denying birth control. They just didn't want to pay for four kinds.
0: Right. And the four kinds, it was important. There's a very important distinction to make there. Right. The plaintiffs in Hobby Lobby define conception as the point when the sperm and egg come together to make a zygote, which is why they objected to the birth control methods, those four. They can interfere after an egg has already been fertilized, which is different because the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists they define conception as the moment when a fertilized egg implants in the uterus. The Supreme Court even noted in its decision that the federal regulations also define conception that way. Pregnancy, they said, pregnancy encompasses the period of time from implantation to delivery. So that's the really key element in that is they, they looked at it as a one-step thing once the... Sperm fertilized the egg. Right. That was a pregnancy.
1: Right. And that anything that interfered with implantation, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that was what they were. It, that's what they did not like, those four mo- methods of birth control.
1: Right. But not everyone agrees on this definition. I mean, that people have to, they differ on it. And the court did not weigh in on the timing of conception or what kinds of birth control may or may not be abortifacients. <laughs> I can't ever that's not a word I'm comfortable saying the court stated they, they said clearly it's not for the court to say what the religious beliefs of the plaintiffs are if they are mistaken or unreasonable and that really is the key to all of this it isn't the court's job to determine if the Green family's beliefs are correct it's not the court's job to define when life begins the job of the court was simply to decide if Hobby Lobby's free exercise of sincerely held beliefs contradicted the compelling interest of the government and to determine if the government's compelling interest created an undue burden on Hobby Lobby. So I believe the the Hobby Lobby ruling was partially correct and in, in some ways, but um by legal standards. And and I'm talking about like according to Rifra, right? I'm not saying I agree that it should have been seen as a person. But what I'm saying is according to RIFRA, on that legal standard alone, I think that the case was was correct. Because according to the exercise clause, there was there was really was not a substantial burden or a compelling interest to society due to the fact that the company did provide 16 different types of birth control. And there was an allowance for people to be able to buy their own. And there was, in fact, a substantial burden on the company, you know, 1.3 to 1.5 million dollars per day, due to the mandate fine. However, all of that hinges on the supposition that the company can be treated as a person.
0: Right. And here is my take is that the Hobby Lobby decision was the correct one if you want to use Rifra. Right. And they did not consider the establishment or the um, exercise clause. They went with Rifra on deciding.
1: Right. Because Rifra basically, I mean, it effectively replaced like the lemon test and all the tests that we discussed before. Mm -hmm.
0: So I do agree that they were right to decide that the way they did under Rifra, but I feel that Rifra is a really deeply flawed law. Rifra does not at all reconcile with the beliefs of the founders. And if you go back and look at the writings, they understood corporations as, is a legal entity distinct from its owners, creators, or operators? and endowed with its own distinct set of rights and obligations. It's an artificial person, but it's not a person like you or I. A corporation can't be put in jail, a corporation can't be executed, or as the legal scholar, Sir Edward Koch, and I've read a ton of his writings, that's how I'm such a legal mind, (laughs) he said, a corporation cannot be excommunicated for they have no souls. Now, as such,
1: except Costco, Costco has a soul, well, they might. but as such, and they have delicious samples.
0: Yes, I know you've been banned. They have a picture of you in there. <laughs> but anyway, the, he said that they can't be excommunicated for they have no souls. They're not real people. So not being real people, the notion of sincerely held beliefs by a corporation it just really pushes the limits of logic and reason. And here's the other hypocrisy to me. If Hobby Lobby were to lose a $10 billion lawsuit, the Green family would claim protection of their personal assets and assert that the corporation was a separate entity from the family. But in this case, they're claiming that the corporation and the family are one and the same for that religious freedom. But they don't want to be the one and the same when it comes to liability. So you can't really have it both ways.
1: Yeah, I actually agree with you that corporations are not entitled to the same rights of individuals. Yeah. But at some point, businesses are owned by individuals and they should get some level of protection and say in how they get to run their business if it meets the legal standard of the government's compelling interest. If a business owner doesn't get to decide how to run their own business within basic societal guidelines, then we really do start kind of getting into territory that denies the liberties that the founders sought to ensure. It, it's really the breadth of those government guidelines that becomes the main legal battlefield. I am going to admit, though, as hard as this is, researching this episode, you brought to my attention how corporations are set up as separate entities inst- rather than like a sole proprietor- proprietorship. <laughs> And um, I really do think you're right, expanding the power of corporate personhood in this realm, it, it really can lead to a very slippery slope. But in this particular case, I can't help but wonder if um, since Alito made such a big deal out of the closely held corporation thing, if that really doesn't play into the decision a lot more. I'm honestly not familiar enough with business law to know all the differences between the entities. I know I drove you crazy today trying to research it all.
0: <laughs> you did. I mean, yes, I- you did. <laughs>
1: I went a little crazy cuz I wanted to fully understand. I, I I felt very challenged and I wanted to understand the differences and and I I actually I I think it it did really learn does. The
0: differences.
1: Well, I was I was kind of on to something and and you said we had to just finish it, but um You were
0: actually to something that had almost nothing to do with this episode that you had spent an hour and a half on. It may have, no, it may have been relevant to two sentences in this, but that is why. Well, you, so you
1: know good what? Karen. Two sentences, two sentences can change everything. I mean, two sentences can shift context. Well, so it's
0: comforting to know that you dig so deeply, Karen.
1: <laughs> I just want to be. I just want to be. You know, I want. I want to be able to back up what I what I say. Um, but I really do. I just. I don't know. I suspect that the subtle differences between the entities could actually have some major legal implications. I came across um, a site that said that C companies are actually viewed as, like you mentioned earlier, as kind of a fake person, kind of its own entity. But the S companies or these closely held companies kind of have a different standard with them. So um I really I think that those could have that could really make a big difference. I think that they might be more held accountable in a personal liability situation. I'm not sure they would have the same shield that another corporation would have. So I guess it is possible if there was more liability that they might be able to have more personhood because of that. I I really don't know. And it would be interesting to kind of find that out. And I think that exploring the history of corporate personhood doctrine would actually be an excellent subject for the next full episode. And it's one that I really look forward to because I don't know all that much about it. And it's going to be challenging to expand my understanding on the matter. However, I don't really think that part of your submission really addresses the issue of the case because I think you're just kind of ranting about something that you feel very passionate about, understandably so and i think that that a lot of people would agree with you but i mean you've actually told me yourself that according to rifra you now agree with some of the court's decision as it applies to rifra it's really the main point of contention that we have with one another is the separation between what corporate entity and personhood is and we pretty much agree on the fact that Rifra has caused more problems than it actually has maintaining liberty, right? Isn't that kind of what we the conclusion we came to? (laughs) Right. Uh, You know, I mean, I think the intention behind it was good, but it was just a very reactive piece of legislation. And I think every time we have reactive legislation, we end up with problems. So, um, you know, I, I really do agree with you on RIFRA. I think the tests that were already in place to determine establishment and free exercise was a much better route to take. We we know that there's a lot of nuance to each case, and we know the courts have to rule in a very general manner. So, I think, and I know you do too, right? I mean, it gives RIFRA oh, way yeah, too I much think power.
0: RIFRA is just, it, it just overwrote things that were in the Constitution.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really did. It it gave too much power and it created a lot of inconsistency as it was crafted on a federal level. So
0: Well, the- to borrow a phrase from a podcaster a friend of mine, I agree with it in the micro that under refra the decision was right. I disagree in the macro and I think that the decision should not have been made because they should have thrown out Rufra and not right. used it at all and used the Constitution.
1: Well, the whole macro micro thing sounds like a very intelligent podcaster indeed.
0: Um, she is smart enough, <laughs> I suppose. Okay. <laughs> she's,
1: well, she's pretty smart, actually. <laughs> fair enough.
0: And for now, that is all we have to say about that.
1: We'd like to thank everyone who takes the time to listen to us. You can always find us on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we would really appreciate you taking the time to drop us a positive review.
0: We have a very active Facebook group. If you'd like to join, you can find us on Facebook at Rants and Reason Podcast Facebook group. And we'd like to thank our moderators for everything they do there to help maintain the discourse. You can also find us on Instagram at Rants and Reason.
1: We'd love for you to follow us on Twitter, at Rants Reason. And if you would like to show us some love, we do have a Patreon page. And you can find us on Patreon as Rants and Reason. We really want all of you to know that we appreciate any support. And we appreciate word of mouth recommendations, shares on social media, and reviews.
0: And we especially appreciate our Patreon supporters, Jennifer who's traveling right now. We hope everything's going well for her. Anon, Steven, Ben from They Walk Among Us. I was hanging out with Ben this time last week. Uh, Jeremy Collins, Timmy from History Dweebs Austin, John Payne, Tony Carr, Michelle Johns,
1: and... And Rudy the Wonder Dog, the world's most dangerous canine.
0: That's right. Now... Yeah, I'm going to sit back in my chair now. I thought you had forgotten us for this episode, and I was all excited, but uh, we do apparently have an unlikely friends story again.
1: We do. It has absolutely nothing to do with the episode, but it made me smile, so here it is. Spencer Slayon, a 22-year-old rapper and producer from East Harlem, and his friends, they were all hanging around the room talking about who their best friends were. And when it was his turn, he said, well, my best friend is an 80-year-old white woman who lives in a retirement community in Florida. Kind of shocked his friends a little bit. And I mean, to be honest, he was exaggerating a little. They weren't exactly best friends, but she was a good friend. And the joke set off a chain of events that led to his flying to Palm Beach to meet Rosalind Gutman, the woman he'd only knew through words with friends on his phone. Their friendship was It started totally randomly when Words with Friends assigned the two strangers to play each other. They would eventually play hundreds of games together. At first, it was all business. In the earliest games, they didn't use the app's chat function, which is often used for banter about the game. But soon, they began discussing current events and the details of their lives, including his plans to move... From Silver Spring, Maryland to New York to chase his dreams of a music career. They played almost every day. Each time there would just be regular, everyday chatting, he said, but the demands of life would eventually interfere and he couldn't find time to keep up with their games. He finally asked his Florida friend for some advice. Whatever you want out of life, she said, just go grab it. And he ended up deleting the game so he could focus on his goals. A few months after he moved to New York, he decided to reinstall the game, and he immediately reconnected with Ms. Gutman, but he had no plans to meet her until Amy Butler, the mother of one of his friends, overheard him talking about his online pal. Ms. Butler, a local minister, wanted to tell the story of their friendship, so she asked if he would um, put her in touch with Ms. Gutman. After talking to Spencer's friend, she and the young man decided to meet Ms. Gutman. So she and Mr. Slayon flew down to Florida, and it was more beautiful than I could have even imagined, she said. There was no hint of awkwardness. It was like they were magnetically drawn to each other. They didn't have much time, just a lunch and a quick tour of Palm Beach, but the photos he tweeted afterwards attracted a lot of attention, including the news. And Mr. Slayon said he was thrilled that his story touched so many people. A lot of people I saw online said, I really needed a story like this, especially with all the race relations in this country right now, he said. Ms. Gutman, she hasn't spoken to reporters. According to Mrs. Butler, Ms. Gutman doesn't know what all the fuss is about. She just says people should behave, people should be behaving this way with each other all the time. But she did send Ms. Butler an email soon after they left for New York. Ms. Butler read the email during her sermon at the church the next Sunday. "'Dearest Amy, I'm at a loss for words to describe today. Without question, it was one of the most memorable days of my life. I'm still basking in the glow of warmth and friendship. You and Spencer extended yourselves to me and embraced me in a most unbelievable fashion.' My only words in this moment are a humongous thank you. I love you both to the moon and back. So, an up-and-coming rapper and a Palm Beach grandma with seemingly nothing in common but words found the thing in common that we all have, the need for the human connection, and they went for it. If they can do it,
0: we can too.
1: Thanks, everybody. Bye.